Bryce for playing a little bit longer there. Taylor, Susan, buy us some time. So thanks again to Fred for being here as he and Keita make their way out. Again, we wish the Lord's hand a blessing to be upon them. But as you're finding your seat, let's go ahead and turn our Bible together to Luke's Gospel as we continue our journey through this text together. We find ourselves in chapter 20 today. It's not printed for you there in the bulletin. It's a bit of a longer text, but there are a few Bibles available for you. Or again, if you brought your own copy, then uh, Luke chapter 20, reading from the ESV, verses 27 through 44 together. And Luke writes, And there came to Jesus some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. And they asked Jesus a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now then, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. And the second and the third took her. And likewise, all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven each had her as wife. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection of the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore. Because they're equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he is not God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any question. But he said to them again, How can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord. So how is he his son? The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, it stands forever and ever. Amen. We mentioned last week that in Luke's gospel, Ever since the triumphal entry of Jesus into the holy city of Jerusalem, he has been on this collision course with the religious leadership. The crowd's reaction to him as he rode that day into Jerusalem was itself concerning, particularly to those who were in power. For as Christ, remember, in the triumphal entry, rides into Jerusalem, the people begin to shout, Hosanna. They wave palm branches, they greet him, in other words, as this would-be Messiah, as this would-be deliverer, potentially the one that Israel had been expecting and the scriptures had been anticipating for so long. But as we have followed Christ's actions since then, what really set the religious leadership of his day over the edge was his cleansing of the temple. Here Christ rides in and he goes to the temple, the the center of Hebrew religious and cultural life, 
And he begins to cleanse it. He overturns the merchant's tables. He drives out the sellers. And he has the audacity even to call it his father's house. In their minds, that again, of the religious leadership, this is akin to this sort of you know, declaration of war. It was blasphemous to them. It was a direct indictment of this religion for money, access for money system that this sort of consumeristic Judaism had, had devolved into. And so people like the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the chief priests and the scribes, all these characters that we continue to meet throughout Luke's gospel, may have couched it in religious terms and they may have couched their practices of that day in, you know, law of Moses uh, factors and law of Moses sort of mumbo jumbo. But at the end of the day, what you're seeing as Christ goes into Jerusalem is that the, those that he are encountering as part of the religious leadership are corrupt. They were legalistic. They were moralistic. There was, again, this consumeristic even uh, culture that arose there in the temple as Christ sees it and starts turning over the tables of the merchants. They had turned relationship into God into this marketplace that they controlled. Or they had turned, if you think of it, access to God into this sort of hierarchical system that they, as the leadership, sat on top of. And while this wasn't the first time that this had occurred in the history of Israel, Think about that. You know, you read the Old Testament that corruption had, had risen before and surfaced before corruption had even reigned before. But God, throughout the Old Testament, sends the prophets. And the prophets come to indict the people of God and to remind them of where they have strayed and to point them back to the way of the Lord. But what happens to those prophets? Well, we know they too are rejected. But this time, when corruption rises again, someone greater than a prophet has been sent, namely Christ Jesus, namely the Son of God. And this was the point then of the parable that he had told in a couple of passages prior to this, we looked at a couple weeks ago, the parable of the wicked tenants, where again, the religious brass do to Jesus what they had done previously in prior generations to the prophets. They reject him, they stop their ears, they turn aside, and ultimately, as we know, they will crucify Jesus. And so here in these texts, as this collision course continues, and as the winds swirl ever tighter around Jesus until they become that Category 5 hurricane we referenced at the cross, their attempts to undermine Jesus, if you notice, become more and more desperate. Again, the, the, the cross is not their first solution. The cross is what they eventually arrive at, but they don't come out the gate deciding to crucify Jesus. That's sort of the last straw for them, if you will. Before that, if you notice, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the chief priests and the scribes, the religious brass first attempt to outwit Jesus, to undermine him, to discredit him, and we've been seeing that with all the challenges they put before him. This carousel of characters which continue to come to Jesus with these sort of, you know, half-baked 
theological riddles that they want to put before him. Or these half-baked, you know, theological kind of hypotheticals. There's even political questions they put before him. Remember last week when they asked him about, you know, rendering to Caesar what is Caesar's, he makes that reply. They bring before him that coin. They want to sort of trap him in either a religious quandary or a political one or both. But you're seeing how their attempts are taking on this greater and ever increasing sense of desperation. That as the crowds begin to grow and they shout Hosanna and do these kinds of things, they might somehow finally undermine Christ and knock him off his pedestal. That he might finally put his foot in his mouth and say something that they can use against him. But you'll notice in today's story particularly, again, their attempt is desperate in its Really, it's silliness, and we're going to see that. And it's desperate in its source. So if you're taking notes, again, in this passage, what you see here is an attempt that is desperate in its silliness and desperate in its source. So let's consider that in the time that we have. Well, if you notice here, the source that comes to Jesus in Luke 20, verse 27 and following, are the Sadducees. You may have noticed that. You may have noticed that Luke's description of them, again, in the class of religious teachers over Israel at the time, there are several factions. And the Pharisees and Sadducees are the most notable, as you read the New Testament, but even they differ in finer points of belief and practice. And the one major point here that Luke points out is that the Sadducees reject this notion of an afterlife. Or they particularly reject this notion of a physical, bodily resurrection into something like an afterlife with God. And the Sadducees reject this because they insist that there's no grounds for this, really, in their mind, in the Torah. The Sadducees also reject this because they they, they reject the sort of official teachings that develop over time in Judaism called the Talmud. Furthermore, out of all the religious factions, again, of that day, the Sadducees are the most sort of aristocratic. They are the ones who are most closely aligned with their Roman overlords, and not because they like that per se. They don't like to be ruled by somebody else. They're, they're no different from the rest of the people in that regard. But they're, they're practical men. They're pragmatic men, if you will. They want to be comfortable and they want to enjoy the good life. And so for all of its difficulties, if they can stay on the good side of Rome, they've realized they can make for themselves quite a nice living. They can enjoy imperial favor, even if it means compromise on, on certain things. And again, this makes sense if you think about their belief that there is no bodily resurrection. There is no kind of proper, you know, capital A afterlife, if you will. One must enjoy what they can here and now. Paradise is what one makes of it here and now, not there and then in the life to come. And so because of that, you can see sort of their disposition. You can see their approach 
to life, the way they ingratiate themselves with the Roman overlords, the way they kind of cozy up to the political sector, if you will, if it means an easing of their burdens, if it means an easier life for them here on earth. And so it's this source, the Sadducees, who come to Jesus. And though they are political rivals of the Pharisees, Nothing brings people together, particularly enemies, better than what? A common foe. So here you have these political rivals who will come together, if you will, around the common foe that they have found in Jesus. So that's your source, Sadducees. But then notice kind of the silliness, if you will, of their attempt to undermine Jesus. Notice the silliness of their questioning. If you think about it, this is like the football team who has to now resort to an onside kick to win the game, okay? You can't rely on traditional play calling. It's too late for that. You have to hopefully, you know, execute an onside kick and win the game. Or you have to resort to a a trick play because, again, you can't get anything going in your conventional offense. This is a smear campaign that wants to distract you and particularly the hearers around Jesus, of the main issues. If you notice, their question is this wholehearted attempt to focus on a tree, sort of a theological tree, and miss the entire forest of God's salvation as it has come their way in Jesus. Pick whatever metaphor you like there, Their silly questioning into Jesus betrays the simple fact here that they don't believe. They don't believe. They don't believe Christ. They don't believe Jesus is the Christ. They don't believe it for a second. They have never believed. But instead of being open-minded or instead of being open-hearted, instead of actually considering Jesus as he has come to them, his message his ministry, his miracles, his life, his teaching, his witness, instead of considering all the evidence that has been put plainly before them. Think about that. We are reliant on the scripture, which is a blessing, but we have not seen with our eyes what they saw. We are reliant upon the scripture, and yes, it is beautiful and verifiable and historically accurate and perfect in its its original manuscript form as it's been given to us, but we have to trust the scriptures. They, though, had all this evidence put before them with their very eyes. First account eyewitnesses, and instead of considering all that they had seen and heard and witnessed, all of that, really and truly with open hearts or open minds, they have already decided not to believe. They have already decided that his ministry cannot possibly be valid. And so they will concoct here a silly sort of theological hypothetical to try in their minds to demonstrate what they insist is the ridiculousness of who Christ is. To demonstrate the ridiculousness of this gospel and to try to make their position more credible. In other words, they are not serious seekers. They are not serious thinkers. They are not fair or open-minded skeptics or inquirers. 
Notice here that they are predetermined, closed-minded, mind-made-up members of this sort of, you know, self-serving echo chamber. But what do we know about that? We know that even members of such an echo chamber can be insecure. And so in order to feel more secure, it's not actually have to consider the issues at hand and consider the viable intellectual, spiritual alternatives, they will try to paint Jesus here as a clown. And that should feel familiar, doesn't it? In today's world, as we are surrounded at times by similar attempts. But notice here how they're trying to basically paint Jesus as a clown. Think about it. Put yourself in the shoes from it. You know, kind of get past the fancy you know, Bible language, which sort of sometimes helps us lose the, what's actually happening here. Think about it. Think about how they come to Jesus. Hey, hey, Jesus. You can kind of hear him laughing in the background. Hey, Jesus. When we all get to heaven, kind of wink, wink, right? They don't believe in the resurrection. When we all get to heaven, and they're kind of elbowing each other, right? You know the place where your father is? The place where you say you're going to go back to? And they kind of start you know, snickering to each other. The place you insist that you're the only way to because of our sin problem? kind of elbowing each other again. Hey, Jesus, when we all get there, what about our friend Bob? <laughs> Remember Bob? They start elbowing each other again. Not the Bill Murray, what about Bob, the Bill Murray movie, right? But what about our friend Bob? Remember him? He was married down here, but he had no kids and died. And when his brother married her, the same thing happened. And then his other brother married her, and the same thing happened. In fact, you can hear him laughing again, all six brothers married Bob's original wife, but again, no luck. Hey, Jesus. And they start snickering again. When we all get to heaven, whose wife is she going to be? And you can just hear him kind of, you know, laughing now uproariously, right? And again, if you read it that way, you can hear and you can see the Sadducees so proud of themselves, so prideful, maybe exchanging a few high fives as they try to sort of put this before, hey, Jesus, you know, it's like the Joker in Batman. Hey, riddle, riddle me this, Batman, right? Riddle me this, Rabbi. Whose wife, whose husband will this be when we get, when we get to heaven, right? Does that sound or feel familiar? It should. Maybe not, not, not that exact, you know, uh, scenario, that exact hypothetical, but even today, there are serious seekers and skeptics to the Christian faith. Our friend Fred talked about that. His ministry, serious seekers and skeptics, folks, even if you can believe it, who have yet to even hear the name of Jesus or hear it properly or know exactly what he claims, who he is, ever step foot into a church. There are, don't get me wrong, there are serious seekers and skeptics to the Christian faith, and to such, the church opens wide her doors. Jesus opened wide the doors of his hearts to such. Think of the, the great quote, which has been kind of a, uh, um, it's on a lot of church bulletins. You may have seen it before. To all who are spiritually weary and seek rest, to all who mourn and long for comfort, to all who struggle and desire victory, to all who sin and need a savior, to all who are strangers and want fellowship, 
to all who hunger and thirst after righteousness, and to all who will come, this church opens wide her doors and offers welcome in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, that's always true. should be true. In fact, perhaps, just like our friend Fred, perhaps that was how we started. Perhaps that was our story, coming skeptically, seeking, not with a church background. Again, to those, the church, and we as Christians always, always open wide our doors. But if we're honest, we also live in a world and a society, not just populated with skeptics and seekers, but even more so with what we would call scoffers. Scoffers. To those whose minds are already made up. To those who accuse us of being closed-minded and narrow, but whose devotion to the religion of human secularism is narrower still. Isn't that true? We live in a world like that. Far more ambiguous, far less intellectually and historically serious. And like the Sadducees here in this story, in an effort to not have to truly examine the issues or truly soul search, in an effort to not have to grapple with one's own sin and shortcomings, and to avoid this notion of an ultimate judge, an ultimate God and king, an ultimate creator, and to avoid the ramifications of an afterlife, but in so doing actually cut themselves off from the grace that this God offers. But again, there are those who, like the Sadducees here, will scoff and will sort of major on the minors. They'll live in the fringes, if you will. The hypothetical kind of riddles of the faith and doctrine in an attempt to make Christianity appear stupid, right? And themselves wise. Yeah, yeah, how, many, how many angels could we fit on the, you know, the, the top of a needle? You know, or, you know, exactly how did this work when Jonah was in the belly of the whale? We're trying to live on the fringe sort of issues. We want to talk about these fringe issues. It's the pseudo-intellectuals in the public square or the pundits on TV or maybe it's your belligerent atheist friend who won't let you ever get a word in. Well, here's the Sadducees. But whoever it is, notice the quiet genius of Christ's response. And notice how it instructs us in our response to such a world today. I'll say it again. Notice the quiet, not, not belligerent, it's still loving. It still has their best interest at heart. It's still evangelistic and it's, and it's Actions, But notice here the quiet genius of Christ's response to their attempt at making him look, look the fool. And notice how it instructs us in what our response should be as well when we find ourselves in similar positions. We're not God, we're not, we're not Christ, but as his followers and as the ones who bear his name, namely Christians, we find ourselves in similar predicaments where we have folks who come to us scoffing at what we believe. And wanting to paint us the fool. How do we respond? How do we respond? If you notice, Jesus points them back to Scripture. And he relies on the Spirit. Christ himself points them back to Scripture. And he relies on the Spirit. Again, the Sadducees have decided to not believe in the resurrection. Based on their traditions. Based on their cultural circumstances. But Jesus here actually calls their bluff 
in terms of such belief arising from the word of God. And he proves that by pointing them back to the very Torah they claim. Out of all the Old Testament, the Sadducees prized the Torah above all, put particular emphasis on it. And so Jesus here, again, being the genius and the sensitive evangelist that he is, goes back to the very Torah which features Moses and calmly shows them how when read properly, Moses himself assumes resurrection. That Moses himself implies resurrection. If the Sadducees will allow Scripture to have authority over them instead of them having authority over the Word of God. If, and this is a big if, they will come to Scripture and check their already decided, mind-made-up cultural assumption at the door and read it with open hearts and read it with an open mind. And the same thing is true for us today. The same thing is true for us today. And the same is true for how we witness and defend the faith. There will always be questions. And we welcome them. Christ welcomed them. There will always be questions. We aren't afraid of questions. But some are more openly serious, and we know the position of one's heart in which they come from. And some are more silly. But we can try to play, you know, what I've described as whack-a-mole, you know, that game like in the, you know, in like uh, Chuck E. Cheese or a carnival where, you know, the mole pops up and you have to take that giant mallet and you have to hit it. And then as soon as you do, he pops up in another hole and you're spending all your money trying to, you know, hit this mole that comes through the hole. That rhymes, didn't mean for it to. But we can, we can do that sometimes as defenders of the faith. And there are some who are called to do that. If you know, our, if you know Brother Paul Copan, who is currently away on, on sabbatical in, in London, he is one called to do that. That's his, his calling. That is his gifting. That is his intellectual prowess. And there are many that we thank God who have that ability to decipher all those issues and help articulate. And again, some are called to that exact ministry. But the majority of us are simply called to continue to present Scripture to those who seek, just like Christ does here to drive folks with their questioning back to Scripture with patience and with grace and with kindness and with understanding and allow for it to do its work as only the Word of God, as only it can. It's no accident here that the Word made flesh, Christ himself, drives them back to the Word that is written. The Word that is written. And so the question is, are we not to do the same? Of course we are. But then also notice how this word made flesh, again, Christ himself, in verses, if you look there, in verses 41 through 44, if you take your Bible and look back there, right there in verses 41 through 44, here, here, here he is, the word made flesh, Christ himself, almost as a response to their smug laughter, he allows for the fact here, he allows for the fact that, that there are paradoxical and mysterious passages in Scripture. Paradoxical and mysterious doctrines, elements to our faith, if you will. Notice that. How can they say that Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Well, if David calls him Lord, 
How is he also his son? And again, we know the answer that the true son of David, namely Christ, is Lord of all. And so in that regard, he is the son of David, but also his Lord. Again, we know how it works. But here in this context, Christ is sort of granting, if you will. There are paradoxical realities to our faith. There are mysterious passages in our scripture, and we have the freedom to admit such. Because at the end of the day, after Christ drives his skeptics, which again are really scoffers in this case, back to scripture, notice how he doesn't really dignify their question. He doesn't try to perform for them. You know, he's not the radio call-in host who's going to answer every minutia of theological inquiry. Those are great. Again, we, we praise God for those programs. But he's not going to perform for them. He's not some theological, you know, again, clown who's going to juggle the Torah for them and juggle all these things in a way where they can leave sort of impressed. He doesn't even dignify, really, their question or perform for them. He simply preaches objective truth. He relies on God's revelation in Scripture, which can far outweigh any of our intellectual prowess or ability to convince. And then at the end of the day, he relies on the Spirit. And you see that kind of in verse 38, when he gives us this wonderfully helpful phrase. Look at verse 38. Again, reflecting on Moses and his encounter at the burning bush. He gives us this kind of wonderfully helpful phrase, for he is not God of the dead, but of the living. For all live to him. Notice how he kind of pulls the rug out from this sort of, whether they believe in the resurrection or not. What does he say? To God, to God, he sees all. This life, the afterlife, in between, he is God of all. In this immediate context, it's sort of Christ's way of reminding again the Sadducees that whether they acknowledge the afterlife or not is irrelevant in some ways to God's truth. For God's presence is everywhere, and that's indisputable. Think of Psalm 139. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I go to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, or if I settle at the far side of the sea... Even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. You see, in this respect, God, as Christ informs them, God is God of all. Believers and unbelievers alike, he is the ultimate God. He is the ultimate source. He is the ultimate definition of truth and Reality, he is the creator and the sustainer of all. He is the redeemer available to all by faith, but only those who recognize him as such and only those who have had their eyes and ears opened by the Holy Spirit. And so in that definition are now truly themselves alive to God. And that's the kicker of Christ's answer. It's that God is alive to all, but only those who have their eyes and ears truly opened by the word of God and by the power of his spirit are now themselves alive to God. And the Sadducees, by their inquiry and their laughter and their refusal to believe, evidence themselves to be dead to God. Though they have everything in front of them, religious trappings, positions of authority, prestige, official titles, they prove themselves here to be dead to God. 
And that's Christ's point. Hear the Apostle Paul in, in 2 Corinthians 2. But thanks be to God, who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved, but also those who are perishing. To the one, we are an aroma that brings death. To the other, an aroma that brings life. And who is equal to such a task? Unlike so many, we do not peddle the word of God for profit. On the contrary, in Christ, we speak before God with sincerity as those sent from God. Think about that in your own life. That you, as one who has been made alive to God, as you, one who has been born of the word, that you now are actually an ambassador of Christ, Paul says elsewhere, a minister of reconciliation. But as you go, you're only given one method, if you think about it, to proclaim the word of God. Not for profit, not twisting it for our own gain, but we just simply offer it to those who ask. And to some, it's a hard truth. To some, our preaching, Paul says, is the aroma of death, like it was here for his scoffers. They cemented, if you will, their unbelief in response to the word of God. But for some, it's the word of life. And we don't get to control who's who. We don't get to control God's methods. We leave it to his mysterious providence. But we are faithful to take that word to any who ask and trust God's mercy and grace for the fruit of the harvest. Again, as we close, notice how this passage encourages and instructs us. The example of our Lord himself, again, points his skeptics and scoffers to the testimony of the word. He relies on the power of the Spirit. And as the Lord of all, he himself even waits on the authority of God his Father, who will eventually give him the seat of honor at his right hand. And if so if Christ himself exercised such reliance on the word and reliance on God's timing, in ways to sort it out, then we should do the same. Until that Lord Jesus returns, until to the chagrin of the Sadducees, he raises all the dead to eternal life, and until he, as the true son of David and rightful Lord, reigns forever. Let's pray together. Our Father, we do thank you for this word of exhortation you've given to us, this instruction, if you will, and even how we can respond in a world that is hostile to what we believe, in a world that is mocking of what we believe. Father, would we, in such moments, have the humility, the humility to recognize that were it not for the Holy Spirit removing the veil from our eyes, then we scoff just the same. That it takes your supernatural illumination, it takes your supernatural work of resurrecting our hearts by faith to see, to hear what you have done. And so, Father, would we have the humility to recognize in our own testimonies 
our dependence upon your miraculous mercy. And Father, when we are called to minister and to preach wherever you have placed us, when we are called to defend the faith to those around us who scoff or ridicule, would we, again, follow the example here of our Lord, who points to the scripture and who relies on the power of the Spirit, again, to do his work, to be the one who ultimately illuminates hearts and enlightens eyes. And so, Father, again, would you empower us to do the same, to be your faithful witnesses here where you have placed us, all for the glory of Christ and all for the advancement of his kingdom. And we pray these things in his strong name. Amen.